0: Before I read Daniel chapter 9 in its entirety, I would like to give just a few uh, things for us to consider before we get into this chapter. Uh, This prayer that Daniel is praying is a covenantal prayer and not individualistic. I think that would be helpful for us even as we think about our corporate confession of sin. So this corporate-mindedness was the way that the Hebrews thought. They were trained by the biblical worldview to think covenantally and not in the way uh, of an individualist. Daniel was one of the few people in all of Scripture that we have no record of his weak character or sin issues. He was obviously of a strong character, of strong faith, a man... Tremendously gifted by God with wisdom and spiritual insight, as we shall see. He prayed every day, morning, noon, and evening, consistently so. His devotional life was above reproach. Yet in this prayer of confession, he identifies with the sins of his people, with the sins of the fathers, and he will then turn to that personal pronoun, my sins, and identifying with the broader covenantal scope in which he was praying. He laments over them, he owns them, he confesses them, and he pleads with God for them. Daniel knew very well the scriptures. He knew the reason he was in exile in Babylon, along with many of the other Hebrews, because it was their unfaithfulness to God And it was God's faithfulness to His covenant in following through on what He promised that He was going to do if His people were unfaithful. That's the reason they're in Babylon. So with that introduction, let's now read together Daniel chapter 9 in its entirety. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book of the numbers of the years, specified by the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, "...and has departed, so as not to obey your voice, therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us, because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, and against our judges who judged us, by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before Yahweh our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people, are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. He informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you the skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for you, or for your people, and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. "'Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command "'to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, "'there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. "'The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. "'And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. "'And the people of the Prince who is to, to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary.' The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is the reading of the word of God. Our gracious Father, as we come to this important passage in your scriptures, we ask that your spirit would be given to us to understand. As Gabriel came to Daniel and said the gift of understanding and wisdom had been given to him, we ask that that spirit be given to us now as we contemplate this prophecy that you have given to us for our understanding. And pray that you would apply it to our lives to bring forth fruit in our lives and the way we live out the gospel today. So we ask that you would meet with us and keep us engaged in this this afternoon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our prayer time this morning, I think you heard, as I did, that Brother Kelly said, let us be on the edge of our seat. So I'm going to be checking you on that one as we go through. As I thought in pre- preparation for the return to our series in Matthew, how appropriate would it would be to take this time of Advent to come back to that series, particularly as we're thinking about Matthew 24, which has been called the Olivet Discourse. It's important because there's so many different interpretations and views that have been popularized, particularly in our day among evangelicals, particularly in our nation and over the airwaves, so that's why I'm going to back up a little bit, and this morning we're going to consider the historical narrative, the story, if you will, of where we find ourselves in Matthew 24, as it was even prophesied by Daniel several hundred years beforehand, almost 500 years before. So as we're backing up a bit, I want to make us aware that a lot of mistakes are made in this very text of Scripture that we just read, as well as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And some of the biggest mistakes in Scripture and in interpreting the Scripture that we have seen rampant in the church in America over the last couple of years. I, if I'm not counting, but I would venture to guess that this nation has produced more cults and false doctrines than any other nation in history in a very concentrated amount of time. Based on taking scripture out of context and then putting into it uh, something that is not true. And so as we consider the passage before us, I don't want to take Matthew 24 out of context. Neither do I want to take Daniel 9 out of context. We want to see the Scriptures interpreting a passage like Matthew 24 in the context of the entire narrative arc of Scripture so that Scripture interprets itself. And failure to see how the Bible is itself unified from the beginning to end has also been a cause of great errors in the Scripture when we take the Old Testament and completely segregate it from the New Testament and we don't see a unity between the two. There's a tendency also to compartmentalize either a Scripture or a doctrine In our day, we tend to think about systematics a lot. So we have the doctrine of the Scripture, and we put that here, and the doctrine of soteriology, and we put that one here, and the doctrine of the Church, the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine you know, all of these things, and we put them in our different compartments. But yet, they are not really woven together in a large tapestry as a unified whole. And we tend to compartmentalize, particularly since the Enlightenment way of thinking has taught us to do this in our modern world. So because there are very uh, uh, many, actually, popular views today in evangelical circles in Matthew 24, views that I believe are an error and not consistent with the Scriptures, I want us to take a little more time... To consider relevant passages to help us understand the nature of what's going on in Matthew 22, 23, 24, and 25. You may remember the context of that section of scripture is when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is now openly claiming he is the long-awaited messianic king, and he goes immediately to the temple. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament as well, given the impetus why God's people should rebuild and finish that temple because Messiah the King will come in his temple. As we think about what he did, he comes into the temple, he cleans out and you know, the, the temple, cleanses the temple of the abuses and the money changers that were going on there. It's not the first time he's done that, he did that another time showing that there was a pattern of behavior that was going on year after year and the kind of thing that he was cleansing. It was there that he would then confront the Jewish leaders of the nation as well as the hearing of many who had gathered there in that Passover season in the temple court. And what Jesus would say would happen in Matthew 24, he said would happen in the time frame in which those people lived. And that's an important concept for us to consider. The Great Tribulation, God's judgment on the Jews for rejecting Him as their Messiah and maliciously used the Roman government to crucify Him, that all happened in A.D. 70 or before. But the, the aspect of this Great Tribulation, the judgment for the Jews' action is something that is past tense. It happened in AD 70. Jesus warned them in the passages that we've been considering in Matthew that this was coming, and it would happen in that generation. And we see that it did happen. Almost all of Matthew 24 has already been fulfilled in the past. It is not something that is still in our future. There's been a lot of confusion in our generation over what has been called the Great Tribulation. And many dispensational pulpits that have futurized a futurist view of this have gone over many airways in both radio and television broadcast. Almost all of the popular preachers on the air today come from this school of thought that the tribulation is still future. The millennium is still to come. Because of our views of both the way we view the past as well as we view the future come into play and how it affects and influences how we live in the present, that's why these things are very important to consider today. Daniel knew the scriptures very well, and so he was able to understand the time in which he lived. He had such a strong biblical worldview that at the age of what we think it may be about 15 years old, he was able to appeal as he was one of the captives taken into Babylon, he was able to appeal to the eunuch in charge of all of these young uh, Hebrew men to, to not eat of the, of the king's delicacies. And we know the story of Daniel well. But from a very early age he was taught the scriptures and he appeals to them even in his confession here. The accuracy of his worldview informed by the scriptures allowed him to know what time it was in which he lived. Where he was and what time it was and why he was there. And it also allowed him to then be the instrument through which then God would then show us a future time in which time has already now passed. It is my intention to cover this chapter in two weeks. This morning, I want us to give a contextual perspective, a very broad stroke of this passage. Next, Lord's Day, I'm going to come back and begin to unpack verses 24 through 27, particularly on those 70 weeks and they're bearing upon Matthew 24, where Jesus, where we find Jesus in our present study. So to understand where Daniel is and what time it is in history in which he's living, we need to understand really the narrative arc of Scripture. Oftentimes we get into our devotional life and we read a chapter a day, or we happen to read a little old, a little new, maybe a psalm, but we're, we don't really understand the large picture and how all of these trees fit into one unified forest. I'm hoping that we can understand a little bit more of that today. When we fast forward from Daniel's day to Jesus' day, the reason the Jews missed their Messiah and couldn't discern their own times in which he lived was number one, due to their own pride, and number two, they did not know the Scriptures well. Jesus rebuked many of them often. Uh, Nicodemus, do you not know the Scriptures? John chapter 3. Uh, to the Sadducees, you know not the Scriptures. He, he ref- continues to tell them that they don't really have an understanding. And these were the leaders of Israel. These were the teachers of the people of the law. In stark contrast to what we see about Daniel in this chapter. He knew the Scriptures well. He was humble. He was confessing the sins of his people. He knew why he was there. Throughout all of Old Testament redemptive history, there was a great build-up, an anticipation of a growing um, anticipation toward Israel's messianic king, who would relieve them from all of their oppression, from all of the tyranny, from all of their bondage, and he would set them free, and he would rule over them with peace and righteousness. And at the same time, the leaders in Jerusalem in the time in which Jesus came, they were not poised well in their spirit to receive such a king. Since the time of the exile... There was an absence of a Jewish king that reigned over the people. What happened in Jerusalem is the priestly system became very aristocratic, led chiefly by the Sadducees, though by the time Jesus was, came along, the Pharisees were incorporated into this. But the temple aristocracy, which at the highest level was the the high priest, he was the chief leader of the temple and the most powerful man in all of the Jewish culture in his time. In addition to his priestly duties, the high priest served as the president of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish highest court. And in the absence of a king, he was the principal agent or liaison between the Jewish nation and the Roman government. So both the religious and political power fell upon him. I don't think he was too ready for a king to be anointed and to come disturb that amount of power and influence that he had. So the high priest, this aristocracy of the priesthood that then controlled the temple had a lot of power and a lot of influence in the time. And it was the pride that was demonstrated over and over again by these that showed they were not willing to bow their knee to a king In addition to this dynamic, God's scheme was really much larger and broader than the Jews really had in mind when they thought about what David would do when he came back to sit upon the throne, the Messiah, that is, Jesus. The biggest issue to overcome is the root of all issues of life. It is the root of all of the kingdom problems ever existing, and that is the root issue of Sin. If you get sin fixed, everything else falls into place. If sin can be overcome, everything else falls into its rightful place. But if sin cannot be defeated, nothing will work. No reform will ever last. We saw reforms, Josiah, Hezekiah. They, they never, they were just a, a skin deep and a flash in the pan because the actual sin issue was still at the root of the nation's problem and of your problem and my problem. Daniel knew this in his day. That's why Daniel prays such a beautiful, model, humble prayer, a covenantal prayer of confession of sin. He knew why they were in Babylon, he knew why they were under foreign dominion. He knew it because it was the sins of God's people that brought God's chastening hand upon them as he had already said he was going to do when they did this and he was going to expel them from the land. This was exile. Daniel knew the covenantal promises of God very well. He knew this covenantal relationship with God very well. He also knew that in exile that God had promised that he would restore his people once again. As we consider the things that are going on in Jerusalem when Jesus entered on the back of a donkey, exclaiming who he was openly as the messianic king, the one who would sit upon David's throne, this kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom now, he was bringing two themes together that always belonged in the Old Testament, the messianic king and the temple. Now what is interesting is we find in both the temple and the priestly Uh, realm as well as the kingly aspects, that we have the offices of a king and the offices of a priest, but in the old covenant never could one man have both of those offices in the one person. That was preserved for Messiah and him alone. But these two themes always go together and they stay together. The vision of a king and the temple was a sign of what God intended to do for the entirety of creation. When God created us in his image, Genesis 1 and 2, he created us as kings and priests of all of creation. These two things have stayed together. The most vivid expression of that perhaps can be found in, in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 2, we have this vivid imagery of the temple upon the house uh, the house of God upon this high mountain. And as we see the house of God upon the high mountain, it says all the nations, will, be, will their people will be streaming into it. There's a coming day, not yet in Isaiah's day, but God will be faithful. And that's what the whole story is about in Israel. The story is not just about Israel, see. But... But God is acting in the world, for the world, through Israel. And when God does for Israel what He is going to do for Israel, then finally the nations will be drawn to it and they will stream into the hill of God, into the sanctuary. They will understand God's justice. They will seek His truth. They will want to be taught of God, they will be fruitful, and their lives will be complete. That's what Isaiah 2, It's a beautiful imagery there that it says that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You deal with sin; everything else falls into place. Isaiah eleven is then expressing the other aspect and, and the work of a great king. And it's out of David's family will become will come a new kind of king. It is out of that vision, which is essentially a king and holding court there, comes a new creation beyond anything that we've ever imagined. A new kind of creation where even the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Everything in creation will be affected by what this king will do. Even as the waters cover the sea, so the knowledge of the glory of God will will just flood all of creation in the reign of Christ. God's going to do a new thing. Human peace and human justice will be all-encompassing on the earth. Now that's what God said he's going to do. These great visions of what will happen in a sense came crashing down in the the history of Israel. As you think about the kings, Solomon then plays with the gods and he marries foreign women and he goes into Egypt and he collects uh, horses and chariots. The very thing he was forbidden to do in Deuteronomy 27-30. through After that, the kingdom is split, and you got the northern tribes, and all the northern kingdoms were evil and did wicked in the sight of God, and you had some reforms in the southern kingdom, but they were only skin deep when you had many rebellions going on. And so God, according to his word, was faithful, and he exiles his people out of the land. The story of exile is tragic. There's a sense in which we live in exile today. I can explore that later this afternoon if we wish. But the story of God's covenant promise that he made by... God is faithful to his word. He's always faithful to his word. And when God's people were unfaithful, God was faithful... And when God said in his word that when you disobey me, I'm going to be faithful and drive you out of the land. That's what he told them. And sure enough, that's what came to pass. He says, if you go this way, if you worship other gods, you serve them, you will go into exile. You will lose the inheritance you've been given. And that's Deuteronomy 27 through 30. As we have the kings that are expounding, really, first and second kings, we see this primarily from the king's perspective. When we have the chronicles, it's revealing much of the same material, but it's doing so from a priestly perspective. The kingly narrative and the priestly narrative, by the time we get to Daniel, we can see that we've clearly come to a point of failure in the land and across the nation. All human resources were coming to an end. The kings and the priests and the prophets and, 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 and the whole nation, they got it all wrong, and so God goes and takes them into exile. Nehemiah and Ezra, who come along after Daniel, they return from the exile. But they find after the exile, they're back in their their promised land, but they're still under foreign dominion. And so there is a sense that they were still in exile even after the exile. It wasn't yet complete. They were still under foreign dominion even in their own land. That's not what we were looking for, they would say. That's not the kind of kingdom we're still looking. Now, to make sense of all of this, we go to Daniel 9. And Daniel understood the reason he was there. His prayer brings it out. He is is interacting with Deuteronomy 27 through 30 constantly through this prayer. Daniel is in Babylon and he knows why. But with precision, he also prophesies what will occur after the exile to the extent of where it is all going. With such precision that I might add, there were noble wise men from the East who understood precisely the time frame for the birth of a Jewish king almost 500 years later and made a long trek to Bethlehem to find this thing that they had learned from a prophet, sage, sage, long ago to be looking for. With that kind of precision, we see what time it is in Daniel's day. In Daniel chapter 9, we see what it means to see God's covenant being worked out. If you're faithful, I will bless you beyond measure. If you're unfaithful, I will be faithful to curse you. And so in his prayer of confession, he is echoing again and again the words of Deuteronomy 27 through 30. He understood how this covenant worked. He understood what it meant for the future of Israel. He also understood the hope and the promise that was given in Deuteronomy 30 that you reflected on as we opened our service. And in the context we find this prayer, Daniel was studying the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied beforehand, before the exile, and just before the exile, that the nation would go into exile into Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah had prophesied that she would go into Babylon for 70 years because of her sins. And here's Daniel who had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, into Babylon. But he had already outlived the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and he is here in the time of Darius, a little later in his life, under the king of the Medes and the Persians. And he's wondering, how long? Okay, when is the 70 years going to be up? And he's praying and he's deliberating. He's confessing his sins. He knew why they were there for 70 years because they had broken the covenant and they had not observed Sabbath. The principle of Sabbath goes hand in hand with God's covenant. Let me just make a little point here that is not insignificant. The Sabbath principle is not a one-off aspect of God's covenant. It is the essence of the covenant. It is the command that we find not only in the moral law of God, but the civil law of God, and in several of the ceremonial laws of God. It is the essence of the covenant. In terms of what we have in Christ in God this eternal rest. And to understand the Sabbath as a mere cessation of manual work one day out of seven for physical rest's sake completely misses its point. The 70 years of exile would be a direct number of the years that God's people had neglected the Sabbath Second Chronicles 36 declares, And those who escaped from the world he would carry away to Babylon, where they came servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Daniel, who had been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, now lived in the time of Darius, where the kingdom of Persia was in power, the time in which specifically Jeremiah had prophesied they would return. Daniel's meditating on this and wondering, is the 70 years up yet? Is it time, Lord? The angel Gabriel then comes to him, and the answer to his questions is, in his prayer, on his knees, while he is praying. Folks, if you ever want to know the will of God, get on your knees and pray. Get on your knees and confess your sins and the sins of our people. And call out to God and wait. Gabriel comes and he says, Daniel... It's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 times 7 years. And that's an extraordinary moment in this answer. There is the seven sevens, which is 49. But this is 70 sevens, which is 490. And Numbers 25, the passage that we read earlier... It says in verse 8, seven Sabbaths of years, which is seven times seven. That's in the 49th year. That 49th year is coming up to the year of Jubilee, according to the legislation of Leviticus. If Jubilee was a Sabbath of Sabbaths, then what is 490? What is a 70? times seven. It is a jubilee of jubilees. And that jubilee was in Jesus Christ where he sets the captive free. He binds up the brokenhearted. He does all of the picture of the Sabbath jubilee. Blow the trumpet for in Christ we have all in all. See, there's going to be a time of exile when it is really over. They would objectively go back to their land after the 70 years, and in that sense, the exile was over. But not in the sense that it is addressing the root of all of the problems, and that is sin itself. That is where the real jubilee comes in what Jesus Christ has done in coming to this earth. So as we consider what Daniel is doing here, in the earlier part of the prayer, he is appealing to God and God's righteousness. God did what he said he was going to do because Israel rebelled and Israel went into exile because God was faithful to his word. Now, however, God said in Deuteronomy 30, that he would bring them back and he would restore them after the exile. So Daniel prays both in sorrow and and for sin, and he prays also for this restoration with hope and faith, knowing that God is faithful. That's exactly how God wants us to pray to him today. He wants us to pray with sorrow for sin, but with faith knowing he is faithful and he will bring to pass what he has promised he will do. So in answer to that prayer, the angel informed him that the righteousness of God will be worked out fully and finally in 490 years. And he gives gives him a very precise time. That the answer to what Daniel was seeking to understand is an extended exile at the end of which a strange sequence of events would happen and occur, but it would involve the final finishing of exile, the final rescue, the final redemption, and bringing in everlasting righteousness. Of course, there would be many details to have to work out. And the point is that during this period, the Jews were calculating This 490 years, just like Daniel was calculating the 70, when this would finally be done. And we can see in the New Testament itself, when Jesus says, the time is now fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And at the time when God had purposed... A fellow by the name of John comes in the wilderness and he begins preaching the way of the Lord. Repent for the time is now. The king has come. God is now to be made king upon the earth. Daniel would say, Yeah, that's precisely, exactly the kind of thing I was talking about. Because in the same book, we have two extraordinary prophecies in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which correspond perfectly to Daniel chapter 9. And in both of those prophecies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we have four kingdoms that were going to be worked out. We find in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we find this image. In this image, there was a gold head. We had a silver torso. We had bronze thighs, and we had feet of clay and iron. Those were to be four kingdoms. The head of gold was the current kingdom of the kingdom of Babylon. Next would be the silver kingdom where the Greeks uh, the Persians and the, Meeks, uh, the Medes and the Persians would come in. After that, the, the bronze would be the Greek Empire. And then finally, the Roman Empire of the, the iron and the clay. When we see these four kingdoms, the prophecy is that after these kingdoms come, there would be one everlasting kingdom that would reign over all kingdoms. In the coming of a king, and Daniel chapter two very much takes the psalm too about the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. In Daniel chapter seven, even more so, we see these four horrible beasts. Again, representing those same four earthly kingdoms. And not only picking up the language of Psalm 2 now, he also then incorporates Psalm 8. There's one like the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, we see that he is made so low, being crushed by these monsters, these nations. But then the Ancient of Days takes his seat And God the Father, the God of creation, calls the Son of Man to come sit beside Him on His throne and has given to Him, just like in Psalm 8, dominion over all of the world. Which is exactly the language of Genesis 1 when God creates man and He tells him, Take dominion over all of the world that I have created in the likeness of my image. And so the long narrative comes through Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 where he speaks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to bring in God's everlasting kingdom. And and why I am taking so much time for this contextual um, uh, stroke here this morning is because this is the same language you're going to find in Matthew 24 when Jesus comes and fulfills it. so the enthronement and the vindication of this Son of Man picking up the human theme of Genesis 1, the divinic theme of Psalm 2, and the messianic theme of the Son of Man in Psalm 8 is now all being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Daniel would would come to pass in 490 years. The jubilee of jubilees. And this is at the very heart of where we find Jesus in the temple. Warning. Warning the officials of that nation with severe woes. At the time Jesus was warning them in Matthew 23... It was as if it were too late for them to repent. The time is fulfilled. The king is present. The Messiah is here. The grand jubilee has come. And they all rejected him out of hand. And they would kill him with the shameful death of the Roman crucifixion. They failed to see their king. They failed to understand the nature of His everlasting kingdom. They failed to discern what was the core issue of it all. Because they did not understand the scriptures. They failed to live in their present because they did not know what time it was. Their worldview had been skewed with their current situation, wanting freedom from the Roman dominion on the one hand, but not wanting to give up power on the other, and not ever seeing where the true power was in the depths of their own depraved heart. They wanted the physical blessing without the spiritual reformation necessary. And there's a lot of similarities with that in the first century Jews there are today in the modern church. This very broad introduction over where we are in the story of Matthew 24 and where we are in Daniel chapter 9, I want to just close with two applications. Like the sons of Issachar, Daniel had discernment in his times. Daniel had wisdom and discernment in the time in which he lived and therefore he knew how to faithfully live in his historical context while even in Babylon. The key to his discernment was knowing the scriptures. The key to to this discernment was to know where he was in the story. Daniel could see the big picture and so live faithfully in the moment. And that's what God expects of us today. You know how to discern the times? Know the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. So whether you are in Babylon in some spiritual exile... You can live in your historical context faithfully, living it out, if you know the Scriptures and you humbly pray as Daniel did. Second application as I thought about this was many people, including the Jews of the first century and Christians in the 21st century, do not know the Scriptures well, and they fail to realize when a historical event has been prophesied, has occurred. This was the problem with the the Jews in Jesus' day. This was prophesied with precision when the king was going to come, and he came. And the Jews were still waiting. They are still waiting today for their Messiah, but they missed him 2,000 years ago because they were looking for something that the Scriptures did not speak. Had they had known the Scriptures better, they perhaps would have received Him more fully. Many Christians today are still looking to the future, thinking that there's some great tribulation that's still to come, but they fail to discern that the tribulation has already occurred in A.D. 70 when God judged His people for this, for rejecting him. And so their entire worldview is influenced by a negativity and an impotence, thinking that this entire world is going to continue to spiral downhill until Christ comes back. And they have no hope for the world today, so why are they to get involved? Why are they to do anything of kingdom work? They just need to survive. And so the way we view our future influences the way we live it in the present. You have to know what time we're in. We have to know where we are in the narrative of God's story. And as we think about the Scriptures and we study the Scriptures and we read them, I would encourage you to read them daily like Daniel. To meditate on them daily like Daniel. To pray them daily like Daniel. And to work out the mapping of all of life through the scriptural grid work so that you can see more clearly the nature of Christ's kingdom, who He is, and how He's working it out in this world today in which we live. Because the hope of glory is present with us today and that is Christ in you. As we consider unpacking the 70 weeks next, Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will look at the things that were promised, including this great destruction and judgment that was sealed up and waiting and then came in A.D. 70 upon, upon the people of God that had cradled the Messiah into this world. And it should have known better. And because of their covenantal perspective, the judgment was very severe for their rejection of Jesus. We're all here today because we have something in common. And I hope that is that we love Jesus and we have bowed our knee to his lordship. But if that is not true of you, today is the day of salvation and you bow your knee to the King Jesus and you give your life submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ willingly and you will know Him to remove the very issue that causes the problems in all of life by cleansing you of your sins and forgiving you of all your iniquities. May God be praised. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for this historical sketch that you've given us, not leaving us ignorant or without a witness. And we pray that we would be faithful to know how to live our life today with what has already occurred in the past, with the hope of our future that is yet to come. May we live in the moment in the Spirit, being faithful to the covenant that you have called us to and living out the truth and the gospel in all of our lives. Make the application with your Spirit to us so that it would bring forth fruit from our lives and glorify your name in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.